Well, brothers and sisters, we will turn to a time of worship this morning from the Word of God. And I would just ask for a moment to uh, get the uh, recording devices started. So, well, good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Twelve score and five years ago, our country's founding fathers, representing the 13 United States of America, declared independence from Great Britain. On this day, July 4th, 1776. 245 years ago, 56 men had seen, heard, and recorded the abuse and absolute tyranny of the king of Great Britain. 56 men were chosen to provide leadership to the people of the American colonies who were determined to live free. 56 men were raised up by God and uniquely equipped to defend freedom, to demand justice, and ultimately to declare independence from the king of Great Britain on July 4th, 1776. Listen to the familiar words of their reasoning and be encouraged in this, that at each and every special moment of human history, God has predetermined and prearranged leadership, men who know righteousness and risk their lives their fortunes and their sacred honor to uphold the righteousness of God. Fifty-six brave and courageous leaders said collectively in our nation's dependence, our Declaration of Independence, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. The founders speak with great patience required for the people to deal with rulers and governments who might cause them under evil suffrage to suffer at length. And yet they go on to say, the founders do, when a long train of abuses are designed, quote, to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient suffrage of these colonies, the founders said. The founders make it abundantly clear. They had petitioned repeatedly on the most humble terms to have their injuries and their injustices and their concerns addressed only to be answered in further injustice and greater injury. Left with no other option, the 56 founders of our great nation concluded the Declaration of Independence with these words. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. And they conclude with this. Listen carefully. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These men believed in God, and they put their trust in each other to see what the Lord would do. And what do we know followed? What do we know followed? Six more years of warfare. Great bloodshed would follow. 
And so would divine providence, would it not? God blessed the efforts and the resolve of the founding fathers of our country because God gave them the resolve, the ability, the gifting to know freedom from tyranny matches the righteousness of God. Freedom, brothers and sisters, is worth the fight. Amen? God will not allow tyrants to reign indefinitely. Jesus Christ will return to make sure that's the case. God will raise up leaders who know righteousness and will fight for freedom. Ask Scotland, who had John Knox come for this very purpose 140 years before. As we celebrate the success of 245 years of the greatest experiment in self-governance the world has ever known, that is the creation of our blessed United States of America, question for you. Do you rejoice in the fact that God blesses all mankind when he sovereignly raises up leaders among us who know righteousness and will sacrifice their lives, their fortunes, and their own sacred honor to provide the righteousness of God for others to live in? Do you rejoice in God's gift of righteous leadership? I would hope that you do. And if you're one who does not, I would ask you this question. Is God obligated to provide righteous leadership for the nations of the world? Not at all. Boy, and that is the course of human history even now, as you look across the affairs of the world. How many despots, how many rulers, how many tyrants reign in this world today? Wicked leadership is a judgment from God. And I would even recognize that America is suffering from both now. Wicked leadership and the judgment of God. God is under no obligation to give great national leaders to any country. 245 years ago, this nation that gives you the freedom in which you sit today was blessed by God. I would further ask you this then. Is God under obligation to provide righteous leadership somewhere in the world? Somewhere is God obligated to provide righteous leaders. What would make God obligated to supply righteous leaders? And if obligated, where would God put righteous leaders? What would be the content of their message? Would it be all political and theatrics? What would they say to you? Where do you go? Where must you go to be led, instructed, and taught by righteous leaders? Ah, we've come to our answer now, haven't we? You found yourself in the very place, the church of Jesus Christ. Here you are, ready to receive instruction, righteous instruction from the Word of God. Why? Why? Because God is obligated by His character to supply righteous leaders for those that He elects, adopts, redeems, and saves. If He has given you ears to hear, know this. He has given you righteous leadership as well. It's part of the gift. Further, this is the joy of Jesus Christ, is it not? To provide leaders for his bride, his body, the church. And go one step further. The Holy Spirit's job is to work inside believers to build us up into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is performed through the agency of the Spirit working in biblically qualified righteous leaders. Consider this, brothers and sisters. Are you blessed today to celebrate 245 years of American freedom and independence? 
There's not enough head nodding. Are you blessed? Yes, you are. Because no one else in the world lives like you live in this country. This is a special place where you live. Go one step further with me. How much more excited should you be to celebrate 2,000 years of the power of Jesus Christ to provide gifted men to lead the church, train and equip the saints for the work of service, and build up the body of Christ? How many pastors and elders has the Lord given to keep you walking a worthy walk? How many shepherds and teachers have helped you diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And where would you be without them? What are the names? What are the names of those pastors? What are the names of the men of God who God has sent into your life to lead you in the paths of righteousness? How quickly do these names come to the tip of your tongue? And when they do, are you thankful? Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Today, as we approach Ephesians 4, it is needful to remember the blessing of body leadership given by Christ to his church, even to us individually. Why? The purpose? To motivate us in a worthy walk. That's the purpose. As we look at Ephesians 4, you will remember Ephesians 4.1 is where Paul commands us to walk worthy of the calling into which you've been called. If you are a brother or sister in Christ, you have been called by Christ into his body. And if you have not been called, if you are visiting with us and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen today in today's message about leadership. Listen for the call of God. Is he calling you to pursue righteous leadership like you've never pursued in your life before? Listen to the calling of God. He wants you to have righteous leadership. And God alone is the one who can author salvation. As we find out in Ephesians chapter 2, how can Paul make the command of us believers, those who have been called in chapter 4 verse 1, to walk worthy? Because God actually saves men and women from their sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that although you were born in trespasses and sins, you were additionally by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But this isn't the end of the story. Chapter 2 verse 4 says God made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Paul goes on to tell us in verse 8, salvation is not something that you do to yourself. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. And verse 10 says that we are God's custom workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. He designed you for a purpose. He's got specific plans for you. And he tells us in chapter 1 through 3, these first three chapters, of God's saving plan. God's sovereignly saving people. He gives us the calling. He gives us the beliefs that we need to have to understand the salvation that we've been called into. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we are told how to behave. We are told what conduct looks like if you've received this free gift. He tells us the elect, the adopted, the redeemed, the saved, how we are to live as Christians. You have to love this about God and about Paul. Never are we commanded to do something that we cannot do. We always find that we are oversupplied, chapters 1 through 3, oversupplied. And only after being oversupplied are we appropriately then tasked and commanded. See this now as we read the text in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 through 16, I should say. After three chapters of the power of God and salvation, commands are placed on your life. 
Commands are made of all of God's redeemed. And further still, in the midst of the commands, Paul can't help but go back and cycle again through the blessings. Blessings of unity. Blessings of diversity. Blessings of grace and gifts and leaders. And you must notice as well, the commands and the blessings, they have a purpose. Build the body of Christ. Cause growth in the church to maximize love of Christ pouring out of the saints and being offered into this world to the glory of God. We'll read the whole text and we'll find our place in verse 11 today, focusing on the blessing of body leadership. It's a joy to read all these 16 verses with you. Read them together with me now. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's pretty comprehensive. But to each one of us, grace was given. According to the measure of Christ's gift, that's the diversity. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He has authority. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And Jesus gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we, brothers and sisters, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But this is what we're going to do in here, in this house. We are going to speak truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each customized individual part, that's you, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Praise God. Praise God for this picture. What a glorious plan. You know, week by week, we are growing together in the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit is building us together and causing us all to grow in the love of Christ for each other. For each other. To prove that we are His body. I think of the strength of the folks in this room over the course of the last year. What a joy it is to, to, to see you all and, and to know your labor of love and your service. We have so much to be thankful for. You have to love the purpose and plan of Christ in building the church. Because in this, in this effort, you have the height of purpose, meaning, identity for your life here in this. And, as far as I'm concerned, the height of excitement. There is more excitement here than in any amount of lake going and whitewater rafting outside of these walls that you could do. How many of you have been tossed around by a class 4 rapid in your life? Salmon River, Flathead River, anything like this? Yeah, there's a lot of excitement out there. Who helped you find the excitement of rafting and kept you safe in that raft through dangerous places? Didn't you need a river guide? A leader? Wasn't there a raft captain that went with you? And took you down those class 4 rapids? So too, brothers and sisters, life in the church is like a ride 
on the river of God's righteousness. Leadership is required on the river of God's righteousness. Leadership is the third in a series of three blessings Paul has given to motivate us to a worthy walk. I'll walk through these blessings with you. Verses 4 through 6, blessing number 1, sevenfold Trinitarian unity. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Verses 7 through 10, blessing number 2, we saw vast diversity given as Christ's grace was gifted to each one of us individually. Customized grace. And then blessing number three, body leadership in verses 11 and 12, which we'll cover this week and next. Paul picks up on the giving of Christ in verse 8 and his quote of Psalm 68 as well and motivates a worthy walk by letting us know you have leaders. You don't have to do this life on your own. God will equip. He will motivate. He will cause men to love his church and to give and serve in his church. Christ's provision for his bride, his body, is the gifting of body leadership. That's what we want to see this morning. Here's where we're going. Paul proclaims the plan of Christ who gave five gifts of leadership to the church so that the saints would be motivated to walk worthy. Paul proclaims that Christ gave five gifts of leadership to the church so that the saints would be motivated to walk worthy. Jesus, you could say, outfitted his church with five gifts of leadership so that believers would be equipped to build the body of Christ. If believers are going to be equipped to build the body of Christ, they need leaders. And those leaders come in five gifts of leadership. What five gifts of leadership did Jesus give the church that it might be built by motivated saints? Foundation leadership. Confirmation leadership. Proclamation leadership. Reconciliation leadership. And edification leadership. Foundation leadership. Confirmation, proclamation, reconciliation, edification. If you didn't get that, we'll go through it in our notes. But we're going to start with number one here in a second. These five types of leadership were gifted by Christ to his bride, the church. Why so much leadership, you might ask? What's the purpose of all the leadership? Verse 12 tells us very plainly, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. You know, this has been God's grand task. Father, Son, and Spirit working together powerfully for 2,000 years, building up the body of Christ, the church. Of course the church would be well outfitted and well equipped and blessed by Christ's gift of leadership. So let's be blessed and let's be motivated as we look at each of these five gifts of leadership given by Christ to his church. Number one in your notes. Leadership gift number one of five, foundation leadership. Foundation leadership. Point number one in your notes, foundation leadership. Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence. They are the founders of America. They laid the foundation upon which our nation's freedom and liberty were built. You know those names. There's a bunch of Georges, there's a bunch of Thomases, and there's a bunch of Johns in that list. Fifty-six men. We're thankful for them. So too, the foundation of the church has been laid by the apostles. You can see it in your Bible there. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. And look at verses 19 and 20. The foundation of the church has been laid by the apostles. Paul says, So then you, Christian, are no longer strangers and aliens. You were, but you're no longer. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
These apostles had the foundation message that they proclaimed. You know, it's important to note as well how closely Paul ties apostles and prophets. They're linked together in Paul's mind in a special way. And yet it is only the names of the apostles that are found written on the 12 foundation stones that make up the wall of the eternal city Jerusalem. John tells us about the eternal city Jerusalem and the 12 foundation stones in Revelation 21. When he saw in a vision the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. He goes on to describe the wall saying this in verse verse 14 of chapter 21 of Revelation. He says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. It's quite a title, the apostles of the Lamb, twelve apostles of the Lamb. Clearly, there is something extremely special to the gifting and ministry of the twelve, dare I say, even thirteen with Paul, apostles. But there is more to consider about Christ gifting the church with apostles. And you might ask the question, well, what more? What more in the gifting of apostles? Well, let's consider this word, apostle, this morning. Apostle is a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos. Just take English letters and slap them right over in place of the Greek letters, and you get apostle. When you have a transliteration like apostle, or the other week we talked about baptism, you miss the meaning of the word apostolos. What is the meaning of the word apostolos in the Greek? It means representative or messenger. The Greek verb is helpful as well, apostello, which means to send. To send, to be sent. Jesus said in John 7, 29, I know the Father because I am from him and he apostello, he sent me. To be an apostle on a very basic level is to just be one who is sent. In one sense, in a very large and general sense, very large, very general sense, every born-again Christian could be said to be an apostle, one sent of God, to communicate the excellencies of Christ. But is Paul talking in broad terms, or is he talking in narrow terms? In In a more narrow sense, many men were gifted by Christ to be apostles in the early church. So we go from the wide, we narrow it in, narrow it into the second sense, Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, and we'll look at verse 25. Because many men were gifted by Christ to be apostles in the early church. Paul refers to men other than the twelve as apostles. Even Paul himself is the thirteenth apostle, and that kind of makes us, you know, question, you know, whose name is going to be cut out and not part of the stones of the foundational city. Probably one of the two brothers that were fighting over sitting at Christ's right hand, right? One of those guys got cut out. They, maybe they get one wall together. <clears throat> but the point is this. There were other apostles in the first century. Romans, chapter 16, verse 7. We just read this the other week as our community groups closed. And if you're not part of a community group, I encourage you to be part of a community group as we start up in September again, looking at 1 Corinthians. Romans 16, 7. We read this. It said, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who are also in Christ before me. Well, what does Philippians 2, 25 say? Philippians 2.25 says, Paul says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And you're going, Oliver, it doesn't say apostle. Why would you take us to Philippians 2.25? Well, what's the Greek word that underscores the translation messenger? What, what word is it? Apostolos. Epaphroditus was an apostle. He provided foundation leadership to the church. 
He was an apostle of the church, but not one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is where we narrow it in. It gets really specific when we narrow it into the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 1 and look at verse 1. We must keep this distinction in our understanding of apostle. There is a general, broad sense of apostle being a sent one. There is a narrower sense of many apostles in the first century to the churches, but then there is a primary sense. And I want to take you to the primary sense, because I believe that's, believe that's what Paul is talking about here in the text. In a primary sense, Christ appointed 12 apostles plus one, Paul the 13th, as his direct representatives. These men received revelation from Christ and were given authority to lay foundational doctrines and duties for the church. Look at Ephesians 1.1. What does Paul call himself? What does he call himself? Paulos apostolos Christu Iesu. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. To hold this title, you have to meet very, very particular qualifications. This, this title of apostle of the Lamb, apostle of Christ. Not necessarily apostle to the church, but apostle of Christ. Very narrow. Here are the qualifications. Number one, you must be trained by Christ personally. Number two, you must have seen physically with your eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ. Number three, you must lay the foundation of the church in the first century, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Number four, you must receive and declare the revelation of God's word, Ephesians 3, 5. Number five, you must give confirmation of your ministry through signs, wonders, and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says this, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And Acts 19, 11 says this, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, no kidding here, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Thirteen men were gifted by Christ as apostles for an intense, foundation-laying season. They accurately handled the Old Testament, interpreting Christ's fulfillment of so many prophecies. Not all of them, more are to be fulfilled, but all the ones that were required for fulfillment in the first century. And at the same time, these men wrote the word of God that you hold in your hand called the New Testament. They wrote the very words of God for us. Their message was confirmed, brothers and sisters, in a host of signs and miracles and healings which happened at their own hand. And those offered those signs of great confirmation of the foundation leadership that they provided to the church. And it must be said, the apostles equipped the saints for service and they built up the body of Christ, did they not? And they weren't alone in their ministry of confirmation. Christ gave prophets to the church as well to perform a ministry of confirmation to the church, which takes us to point number two in your notes, confirmation leadership. Confirmation leadership. Point number two, leadership gift number two of five, confirmation leadership. Confirmation leadership is given by the prophets. Chapter four, verse 10, Paul says, and Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets. He pairs these two, uh, these two leadership gifts off together repeatedly, pairs them off together. And the question is, does the church of Jesus Christ have apostles and prophets today? 
Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Are we today getting revelation from God through men? Like the Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church. I should say Roman Catholic system. Or even Benny Hinn. These men would have you believe that they are speaking new revelation on behalf of God. Just like the apostles. Are the healings and the miracles and the signs and wonders offered to you today by Lou Angle and Mike Bickle, Todd White, and Bill Johnson of Bethel Church, which also has Bethel Music in Redding, California? Are those signs and miracles and wonders, are they real? Are they necessary? Is the gospel going to be confirmed by, quote, the third wave of the Holy Spirit which is supposedly happening even now in our time, according to the proponents of the New Apostolic Reformation, which is a creation of C. Peter Wagner and his followers like Kenneth Copeland and the Master's Seminary graduate known as Francis Chan. No. No, there are no signs. There are no miracles. The New Apostolic Reformation is heresy. It is garbage. There is no third wave Holy Spirit. These guys didn't even reflect on us when the second wave rolled through. There are no apostles and there are no prophets today in the primary sense of the word. John MacArthur notes the apostles were like delegates to the Constitutional Convention. When the convention is over, the position ceases. Once the foundation was laid, the work of the apostles and the prophets was done. That work was done. John Stott says, we should not hesitate, therefore, to say that in this sense there are no apostles today. And to that I say, amen. And I say there are no prophets either. And I really just want to seal this into your mind on on, on this point. Let me seal this into your mind because young men and young women, you're going to run into people in this life that want you to follow Bethel Music and Bill Johnson. They're going to want to take you to see Lou Engel or understand the ministry of Todd White. Someone's going to come in and ask you to participate. Watch this video. Oh, such good things. And many, many folks love the preaching and teaching of Francis Chan, someone who graduated from the very same place that I did. And their teaching is heretical and it's off the charts. You need to be discerning and pay attention. These are lies and they will pull you off into them. Everything you need is in Scripture. You don't need the lies of these men. You're in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, where we can see the ministry of the first century prophet named Agabus. And I offer Agabus to you as a direct contrast in prophetic ministry to the charlatans and heretics that I had named earlier and the many others who are in our society as well. Paul is concluding his third missionary journey in Acts 21, and returning to Jerusalem by sea. His seafaring ways have concluded at the port of Caesarea, from which he will travel by foot. And before he takes his 75-mile walk up to Jerusalem, Paul is staying with Philip when Agabus shows up. Agabus was previously offered, or had previously offered, an accurate prophecy about a famine that would come to the land in Acts 11.28, which led to a collection being taken up for the brothers and sisters in Judea. And so you have to ask the question, Agabus, what are you showing up now for in Caesarea? What will you prophesy now? 
Read the text with me from Acts chapter 20, verse 8, where Luke records in verse 8, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And you and I know the end of the story. Agabus was right. God gave Agabus a second accurate prophetic vision. Paul was bound and imprisoned by the Romans, which God used to propel the gospel. Harold Honer says prophets were endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, comfort, and encouragement, and revelation of God to the church. This is a confirmation ministry done by these prophets. question for you is this. Considering the environment in which we live, where many men stand up and say they are apostles or they are prophets. Question. If the prophet was wrong, who was to blame? Answer. The prophet. And if the prophet was wrong, did he get another chance? No. How awkward then today to deal with these so-called prophets. Not only are they routinely wrong, they are never held to account for all of their heresies and all the tricks and mind games that they play on people. And they blame the faith of their audience for their failures. Christ's prophets of the first century were 100% accurate 100% of the time for the purpose of confirmation of the gospel message. And it must be said, these prophets equipped the saints for service and built up the body of Christ. The foundation and confirmation leadership of the apostles and prophets was needful only for the first century founding of the church. It's appropriate to think of the apostles and the prophets like the United States Marine Corps. Always the first to attack new locations and set up a beachhead. Boldness and confident in their abilities. Filled with bravado, ready to go, fight, kill, and win. And for the apostles, their ministry was much the same. That was a joke. <laughs> and whereas we are extremely thankful for the service of the United States Marine Corps, even more so, should we be thankful for the gifting and service of the apostles and the prophets who laid the foundation of the church. The, their leadership, their, their gifting by Christ is so special. It no longer exists. We don't have the privilege of, of taking Paul's handkerchief and being cured of our illness. And yet Christ did give leadership gifts 2,000 years ago that do remain even in the church today. What are those gifts? This brings us to leadership gift number three in your notes. Proclamation leadership. Leadership gift number three of five, proclamation leadership. The third leadership gift you see here in Acts 21, right there where you're at, Acts 21 verse 8, where, Paul, where Luke records that Paul entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. This title evangelist only appears in Scripture three times. At this verse, in Ephesians 4.11, where we're studying today, and when Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4.5. Evangelist is another transliteration, coming from the Greek word euangelistes, 
By definition, it means a preacher of the gospel. It is a noun, a noun, a person who's gifted to speak the gospel, the euangelion, right? The euangelion, which is the good news. To preach the gospel is to euangelizomai, that's the verb. And you can hear how all of these words are connected. Gospel preaching was part of Paul's gifting as an apostle. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to euangelizomai, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And Paul demanded gospel preaching then from Timothy as well in 2 Timothy 4.2. He says to him, preach the word, euangelizomai, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Harold Honer says, where prophets communicate new momentary revelation from God, evangelists stick with the gospel continually. They stick with the tried and true. Not only do evangelists stick with the gospel, but they have a boldness to their confession and witness, which is very much in keeping with the boldness and confidence of the apostles and prophets. And again, when I think about the church today, and I think about evangelists today, my mind just goes back to this idea of the Marine Corps. I just, I just see a guy that understands accuracy with weapons, which aims to pierce the human heart, right? whether that's the, the gospel message or bullets. This is the Marine Corps. They take a boat ride to a new place, run, shoot, win, and move on to the next beach city. I love that mentality. Go! Get it done. And we love those men that do that. There's a boldness and a confidence to that, and that's what we have in evangelists. The church has been blessed with evangelists for 2,000 years. Even today, in guys like Ray Comfort. Uh, I want to list this for you. Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, Tony Miano. You should write these names down. Go watch a video. Go watch a YouTube video. Tony Miano. Cy Ten Bruggenkate and Jeff Durbin. We see God's particular blessing on men to preach the gospel extremely effectively to crowds of people, even hostile crowds of people. The work of the evangelist is proclamation leadership. Proclaim, herald, speak the truth, even in cases stir up trouble, because that's what the gospel does when it attacks human hearts. And allow God to providentially, sovereignly work in those hearts that they may be saved. And it must be said, evangelists equip the saints for the work of service. And these men build up the body of Christ. Christ has blessed the church with evangelists from the first century even to today. Are we thankful for the work of evangelists? Do we learn and grow from their ministries about how to share the gospel effectively. Evangelists are not alone in leadership in the church today. They are joined by pastors and teachers, which brings us to points number four and five in your notes. Points numbers four and five in your notes. Point number four is this, reconciliation leadership. It's the fourth of five leadership gifts, reconciliation leadership. And point number five, edification leadership. The fifth of these five leadership gifts. Reconciliation leadership and edification leadership, pastors and teachers. John MacArthur says, these two gifts of leadership are best understood as one office. Where John Calvin didn't view these as one ministry, but two. And, and though I believe that they are two unique gifts of leadership, I'm going to tackle them both together. I'm going to try to honor John MacArthur and John Calvin at the same time. We're going to share those positions. Why would I tackle them together if I believe that they are unique gifts? Because I believe both of these leadership gifts fall under one category, one title. 
pastor, shepherd, teacher, these are the gifts of a group of men called elders and overseers. First, what is reconciliation leadership? What do I mean with this title? Where did I come up with this title? Your text says pastor. How did I get reconciliation from pastor? That's a great question. Turn in your Bibles to John 10. John 10. I could just point you to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, where Paul says God gave us the ministry of reconciliation and committed to us the word of reconciliation. But I want to go further than that because there's a word picture in this reconciliation word that we get in, or this, this word in, in, in the Greek for pastor. And it deserves your attention. Your English translation is doing you a bit of a disservice in Ephesians 4.11 with this word pastor. I, I, I say that mildly, but I, I want you to know that this is here. The Greek word being translated pastor is poimen. Poimen. Eighteen times poimen appears in the New Testament. And at Ephesians 4.11, this is the only time of the 18, the only time that this word is translated pastor. Do you have any idea what other word your Bible uses to translate poimen 17 out of 18 times? Why change it here? Why change it here? What's the word? You are in John chapter 10, look at verse 11, where Jesus uses poimen twice in one verse to describe himself. You see it there in the text, John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What picture and image do we find in the word poimen that aids its understanding, that aids its meaning and its definition? The image is that of a shepherd. Jesus Christ is the true shepherd of his church, and yet he has appointed under-shepherds, under-poimen. He's appointed overseers, the episkopos. He's appointed elders, the presbyteros, to lead the church the Old Testament is loaded with shepherding imagery. I could take you to Psalm 23, verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And one that's really impactful is when you read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, which says, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Shepherding is the premier biblical imagery for leadership and a clear image of reconciliation. How is shepherding an image, a picture of reconciliation? Oh, you shouldn't have to think about this too hard. Shepherds lead sheep. And sheep go astray. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And yet we know, Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What does the shepherd have a rod and a staff for? Because sheep get out of line. Right? You've got to knock that sheep on the head. <laughs> Give a little whack in the backside. But we find comfort in our shepherd's rod and staff, do we not? Because we know we need that. We stray, and we have to be reconciled to the flock. The function of the shepherd is to reconcile the sheep to the flock and to himself as their only provider, protector, and defender. That's who Jesus is to you. He's your provider, protector, and defender. Jesus is the true shepherd. Amen. Spiritual shepherds function in the same way. 
gifted by Christ to function the same way. To reconcile you to God, to, the, to Christ, to his church, and to each other. And for this reason, Jesus commanded Peter in John 21, 16, saying, shepherd my sheep. Jesus knows his sheep, and he knows specifically the sheep that belong to each shepherd. And for this reason, we are told in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Do you see, brothers and sisters, shepherding is reconciliation? Because shepherding involves accounting. There's an accountability here. Just like the accounting of a banker, a teller, or a cashier who must reconcile the cash left in their till when the store is closed with the receipts from the sales of the day, so too Christ's gifted shepherds will give an account for their care of his sheep. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. On this point of accounting, I'd like to tie the leadership gifts shepherd and teacher together. Both shepherds and teachers are held to strict accountability by Christ. And the reason is simple. Because you are a great value to God, the God who saved you. You matter to him. You are his sheep. You are his prized possession. You are his treasure. And you deserve shepherds who care for you, who love you, who know Christ's sacrifice. Christ loved you so much. He died to pay for your sins. He issued salvation personally to you. He knows your name as such. He will not leave you hanging in this life. You will have shepherds appointed over you. He will provide for you. He has given his sheep under shepherds who offer protection, comfort, and care. While at the same time, he gives his church with teachers who offer edification leadership. What is edification leadership? It is teaching and instructing, teaching wisdom, teaching knowledge from the scriptures. Teachers are the ones who bring the word of God into your heart and mind, into the hearts and minds of the people of God. The Greek word is didaskalos. It means teacher. It's used 58 times in the, in the New Testament, largely in the Gospels, where it is used as an equivalent of the Hebrew word rabbi. Paul is speaking of teacher in the church. The ones that have great authority and accountability before God due to the size and scope of the leadership that they've been called into. I do not believe that Paul is speaking about teachers of maybe the elementary or the pre-K. So if you want to sign up for those later today and talk with me about that, don't worry about the additional accountability of an elder. It doesn't come with that. You can teach without that responsibility. Paul is thinking of teachers like James thinks of teachers. In James 3, 1, where James says... Let not many of you become teachers, brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so you might ask the question, well, then who wants to be a shepherd or a teacher? Well, why would anyone want this? Stricter judgment for leading dirty, filthy, naughty, disrespectful sheep? Who wants that job? Can't I just take a place in the body and and, and do the simplest, uh, easiest, uh, remote job and, and, and just slide through my Christian life? That might be the thought of most. There's great questions here. Who would sign up to be a shepherd or a teacher or a pastor or an elder? You've turned to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Read the text with me. And, and as we look over this text, I, I want to answer a couple of questions because it will. Who would sign up to be a shepherd? And what makes a man qualified to lead Christ's sheep and face the strict accountability that he will require? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. 
If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he know how to take care of the church of God and not a new convert? So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Do you see what the text says? God places it in the hearts of certain men to aspire to the office of overseer. How about that? You know, if you left this to human wisdom to answer this equation, no one would sign up except for charlatans and hucksters and false prophets and wolves. But God causes men to love his church so much that not only does he burden their hearts to raise their hand and identify that they aspire to the office of elder and overseer, but God does one more for that man and one more for the church. Paul gives Timothy a big list here of qualifications. And so the man gets to see this is what it takes to be a servant of God. For a man to lead the church, he must meet the qualifications. Consider them, the qualifications. There's got to be a desire. There's got to be the ability to teach. There's got to be gentleness. There's got to be a household in order and children who handle themselves with all dignity. This list serves as a warning for potential elders and shepherds and teachers, but it also serves as a guide and a guard for you, the church, to know whether or not your pastor is qualified to represent Christ and to lead you and men to lead your families. That's what's happening in the text here. Consider the list. It's so helpful because which man among us could meet all of these qualifications in his own strength? None of us could do this. And that demands that your spiritual shepherds and spiritual teachers are fully dependent on God. I would never take this position. I would never ascend to this pulpit without full reliance on God. And you need to know that from me personally. The only way that any man can meet the requirements to shepherd and teach the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is if the grace of the Lord is upon him. George Washington said this, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Brothers and sisters, just as God sovereignly orchestrated 245 years of American freedom, so too the Lord Jesus Christ has blessed and gifted his church with leadership for 2,000 years. He has never failed his bride. And it must be said that Christ's pastors and shepherds and teachers do the work of equipping the saints for the work of service and building up the body of Christ, of which I am just standing in the line of many, many men having been blessed by so many men walking in this path. And you as well. You come from some really good churches who have had faithful, faithful men for many, many years. And praise God for all of them. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul motivates us to walk worthy by declaring five gifts of leadership Christ gave to his church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers. And as we close, I would like to leave you with this reflection on some questions. I'm just going to ask some questions, and I just want you to receive these. 
What do you think of Christ's gift of leadership to his church? Are his leaders in the church more or less gifted than the men who fought the Revolutionary War and signed the Declaration of Independence? Do you rejoice in church leadership? Are you exceedingly thankful for them? How have you been blessed by leaders? How do you treat them? Do you love them, obey them, submit to them, or do you think that your ways are better? Do you think that your mind and heart are better? Do you find that your own ways are higher and your own thoughts loftier than your pastors and shepherds? Are you content with the church of Jesus Christ that you have made up in your own mind? How blessed are you by the order and the structure that Christ has provided in the church? How blessed are you by today's pastors, elders, shepherds, evangelists, and teachers? Would you rather do church on your own? Would you be better off in a home church? Or has Christ really done you well in giving gifted men, humble men, men of God who teach, shepherd, and lead on God's terms? Let me leave you with Paul's words in Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. To motivate a worthy walk and stir on your love for the leadership of the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says this. But we request you, Paul says. Paul requests of the Thessalonians, we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who labor diligently among you. And have charge over you in the Lord. And give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love. Because of their work. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, thank you so much for the line of men 2,000 years deep that has built your church. When we think about John Knox in Scotland, we think about Martin Luther in Germany, we think about John Calvin in Geneva, and one after the next after the next, you have blessed your church every step along the way. We thank you, Lord, for evangelists, pastors, and shepherds. And we pray that as we read this text, we understand that you've gifted them to the church, and you've gifted them for a purpose, to equip us to do the work of service, so that we all would collectively enjoy being built up into the body of Christ and just receiving all the love that comes from being built into your body. I pray that for Community Bible Church, Lord, build us into the body of Christ, filled with love, by equipping your saints and sending leaders. In Christ's name, amen.